0: Why listen to the rest when we're the best? Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our interstitial cystitis bladder pain syndrome series. This session will focus on the new various treatments defined by the American Urological Association, and it's kind of varied because it's lined up as first line all the way to sixth line options. We'll present all of those in this podcast. Let's get to that now. Before we get into specific treatment options for interstitial cystitis, a quick word regarding prognosis. Some studies suggest that IC, or painful bladder syndrome, is a chronic condition with a waxing and waning course, with an average little improvement over time, while other studies suggest that most patients seem to improve over time by themselves. Until more definitive, effective therapies are identified the treatment approach should be tailored to the specific symptom of each patient. This is done in order to optimize their quality of life. Gynecologists or any women's health providers may need to partner with other clinicians like primary care providers, nurse practitioners, registered dietitians, physical therapists, pain specialists, even GI physicians, and of course urologists to maximize outcomes. Now before we get into the specific line treatments, we have to say the overarching goal here. Overall, according to the AUA, treatment strategies should proceed using more conservative therapies first with less conservative therapies employed if symptom control is inadequate or it's still impacting quality of life despite minimal interventions. Multiple concurrent treatments may be considered if it's in the best interest of the patient. Most importantly, as a clinical pearl, the interstitial cystitis diagnosis should be reconsidered if no improvement occurs after multiple treatment options have been done. Treatment that may be offered includes... First line all the way to six line treatments. And we're going to cover these in detail in this podcast. Again, according to the AUA, which line option to choose really depends upon the patient's symptoms, the potential benefit of the medication, and the potential of any adverse events with therapy. Now, because of their irreversibility, surgical treatments other than possibly fulguration of Hunter's lesions when they're seen at cystoscopy are generally appropriate only after other treatment alternatives have been exhausted or at any time in the rare instance when an end-stage small fibrotic bladder has been confirmed and the patient's quality of life suggests a positive risk-benefit ratio for major surgery once again major extensive surgery should only be done after full-line spectrum of medical and behavioral options have been exhausted. All right, now that we've laid that foundation, let's start with the first-line recommended options according to the American Urological Association. Remember, as we start with the first-line recommendations, we're going to walk down this list until we get to the sixth-line option. According to the AUA as first-line option, patients should be encouraged to implement stress management practices to improve coping techniques and manage stress-induced symptom flares. Why is this? Well, one, we now know much more about the mind-body connection, and there is a tie to high stress states and flares of this condition. So, basic behavioral adjustments, even biofeedback as a minimally invasive option is recommended as first line by the AUA. Behavioral modification strategies may include altering the concentration and or volume of urine either by fluid restriction or additional hydration. Application of local or regional heat like in the lower back or lower abdomen or over the bladder or the perineum is also advised. As first-life intervention, avoidance of certain foods known to be common bladder irritants for interstitial cystitis like coffee or citrus products is also recommended by the AUA. Use of an elimination diet to determine which foods or fluids may contribute to symptoms is also recommended. Now, over-the-counter products that may include like nutraceuticals or calcium glycerophosphates or even pyridium is recommended as first line by the AUA. Also in this line of intervention, techniques applied to trigger points and areas of hypersensitivity may allow for reduction of flare-ups, pelvic floor muscle relaxation in patients who have coexisting chronic tension of the pelvic floor is also helpful. The AUA also recommends as first-line option bladder training and urge suppression, but again, this is difficult to do other controllable behaviors or conditions that in some patients may worsen symptoms include certain types of exercise and that can include sometimes sexual intercourse and the wearing of tight-fitting clothing or the presence of constipation. So the patient is advised to be alert to these triggers and avoid them if resolution of the symptoms is possible. Let's stop there for just a minute because that really was a mouthful. It all boils down to this. The AUA state says as that first line intervention for interstitial cystitis, behavioral modification, dietary modifications and avoiding of triggering types of behavior is the first line because any time that we can do behavioral or self-awareness therapies over medication, that's obviously the best. The difficulty is when, for example, intercourse triggers a flare, and the patient is in a relationship. Well, it's hard for her to avoid sexual intercourse because intimacy is part of a relationship. But remember, as first line, it's something to consider before we progress to the other options. Now that we've done that, let's proceed to the second line recommendations. If first-line options fail, what does the AUA recommend for second-line interventions? Well, many patients with IC exhibit tenderness and or banding of the pelvic floor musculature along with other soft tissue abnormalities. When these soft tissue abnormalities are present, clinical experience and a limited but high-quality literature search does suggest that manual physical therapy can provide symptom relief. Unfortunately, appropriate physical therapy expertise for the pelvic floor is not available in all communities. The AUA states that in the absence of appropriate expertise, routine forms of pelvic physical therapy that are primarily aimed at strengthening of the pelvic floor are not recommended. So we're talking about very specific pelvic exercises that are specific for I C. No well-designated studies have evaluated the possible therapeutic role for other forms of massage or other forms of body work, although interventions aimed at general relaxation have in fact proven helpful in most other forms of chronic pain. And it still can be recommended for interstitial cystitis patients once again because that relaxation approach can help that mind-body relationship and can lead to less flares second line options obviously also includes the use of medications now given the current state of knowledge Pharmacological pain management principles for IC should be similar to those for management of other chronic pain states. Now, let's put this into perspective. Remember, we're still talking about second-line options, and first-line is behavioral modification, stress reduction, so don't go straight to medicine in these patients unless it's a severe quality-of-life issue because medications fall to second-line. Now, as we get into this medical therapy, it's important to remember that currently there is no single method to predict which drug is most likely to alleviate pain in any given IC patient. So clinicians and patients should be aware that a multimodal approach in which pharmacological agents are combined with other therapies may be the most effective. In addition, effective treatment of symptom flares may require a pain treatment protocol with some flexibility to manage flare-related breakthrough pain. The goal of pharmacotherapy is to find which medication or medications may provide significant pain relief with minimal side effect. Now, pain management tools include urinary analgesics, NSAIDs, and non-narcotic medications which have been used in other chronic pain syndromes, including atypical medications like those used for depression or epilepsy. Now, the use of narcotics presents the risk of tolerance and, of course, dependence, and we're trying to steer away from narcotic use. But it is clear that many patients benefit from short-term narcotic analgesia as part of a comprehensive physician-driven program to manage pain. All right, now we've got lots to cover here regarding which specific non-narcotic medications has been used for IC. Without doubt, pentosin polysulfate or Elmeron is by far the most studied oral medication in use for IC. Now, the AUA did evaluate seven randomized trials reporting on more than 500 patients from which to draw evidence regarding effectiveness for this medication. The body of evidence strength by the AUA was categorized as grade B because although the individual trials were of high quality, the findings from the trials were sometimes contradictory. Overall, and here's a clinical pearl the AUA, after reviewing all the trial data on Elmeron, judged that these findings provided some certainty that the balance between benefits and risks or burdens on average is relatively equal, and that similar to other oral treatments, oral Elmeron may benefit only a subset of patients. So that's a clinical pearl and that's different from how I trained because elmeron was first line when I was in residency. And again, now to summarize and to repeat the finding, oral elmeron may benefit only a subset of patients administration of oral pentosin polysulfate therefore is still designated an option but its effectiveness has fallen out of favor and that's why it's now at about a second line recommendation note that there is some evidence that Elmron has lower efficacy in patients who are found to have hunter's lesions on cystoscopy now as another medication what about amitriptyline well let's cover that next The AUA states that other medications which have been used successfully for other chronic pain conditions may be tried as well, although their efficacy for IC specifically is somewhat mixed. Amitriptyline and hydroxyzine may be tried. However, according to the data, it may take three up to six months for some results. DMSO, heparin, or lidocaine may also be administered as second-line intravesicular treatments, but that's after oral medications have failed. Well, now that we've covered medical options, what is the AUA state is a possible third-line option. Let's do that next. According to the AUA, third-line options include cystoscopy under anesthesia with short-duration, low-pressure hydrodistension. This may be undertaken if first-hand and second-line treatments have not provided acceptable symptom control and quality of life is still affected. Now, if Hunter's lesions are present at time of cystoscopy, then fulguration with laser or electrocautery and or injection of triamcinolone is recommended by the AUA. Regarding fourth-line options, intradeducer botulinum toxin A may be administered if other treatments have not provided adequate symptom control and quality of life is still being affected. The patient must be willing to accept the possibility that intermittent self-catheterization may be necessary after botulinum treatment. Remember, this is why this is fourth-line recommendation. Also under this fourth line recommendation is the use of neurostimulation. A trial of neurostimulation may be performed and, if successful, implantation of permanent neurostimulation devices may be undertaken only if other treatments have not provided adequate symptom control and quality of life is still affected. So, neurostimulation and botulinum toxin are both categorized as fourth-line options regarding fifth line options cyclosporin A may be administered as an oral medication once again only if the other medications have proven inadequate so for fifth line cyclosporin A may be used since some data show it's effective in these patients that brings us now to the sixth line option and we talked about this just earlier in the podcast this includes major surgery Obviously, this is the last resort. Major surgery, which is substitution cystoplasty, urinary diversion with or without cystectomy, can be undertaken, but it's only in carefully selected patients for whom all other therapies have failed and for who suffer significant negative impact on quality of life. Well, Podcast Family, that wraps up our Part 2 of Interstitial Cystitis. This review has summarized the AUA guidelines regarding management, now providing first-line all the way to sixth-line options. Again, medicine changes. When I first trained, Elmron was considered first line because it was minimally invasive, well-tolerated, and had almost no side effects. However, because the data now is less clear regarding efficacy, that is now dropped to second line. So as you can see, this is why it's important to stay current and always follow new data as it becomes available. Thanks for listening to this part of Clinical Pearls, and we'll see you next time on our podcast.